The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hello, and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Walsh. And I'm your host, Ronald Schmelzer, and we have a really exciting podcast for you today. As you know, we've been recently uh, interviewing and, and talking to a lot of the other hosts of other podcasts on the subject of AI and data science and data in general, mainly because, well, these other podcast hosts have seen some great guests of their own. They have some unique insights into the space. And I think it's interesting for our audience to hear from those folks. Well, first of all, it's, we're not going to be interviewing 100 people in five minutes, but it's good to get the podcasts who have interviewed 100 people because we can get them to summarize that in about five minutes. Well, maybe 20 or 30 minutes. But <laughs> um, for those of you who are maybe first-time listeners to our show, maybe you're coming from the Half Stack Data Science podcast, which our guests are from. Uh, if you're new to the AI Today podcast, this is now our fourth year. We are over 200 episodes. Um, and we spend our time here on AI Today interviewing folks who are putting AI into practice today. So we could talk about the realities of making AI and data science work, some of the challenges, maybe the mismatches for what we're hearing in the press and what we're seeing in reality, of which we understand that happens very often. And um, also in our AI Today podcast, we spend time uh, looking at the markets. Uh, some of our research at Cognolytica, we, we take a look at what's happening in, in the broad within all the vendor landscape. And also uh, we spend a lot of time on doing AI right. You know, it's becoming now people are aware there are methodologies for doing AI right. We spend a lot of time on best practices methodology, especially the CPM AI methodology, which I'm sure will come up later in this podcast as well. But anyway, as mentioned today, we are excited to have with us the hosts of the Half Stack Data Science Podcast, David Asboth and Sean McGurr, who are uh, both the hosts. So thank you guys so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. Great to thanks. be here. Thanks, good to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for joining today. We're excited for this podcast. We'd like to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners, tell them a little bit about your background, why you started the podcast, and maybe explain the name of your podcast as well, the Half Stack Data Science Podcast. I'm Sean McGurr. Um, I'm a co-host of the Half Stack Data Science Podcast. I'm currently an AI evangelist at DataRaiku. Uh, when we started the podcast, David and I we're working at Cox Automotive UK, UK's subsidiary of a large um, US company. And we were working in a data science team, a small data science team, and we were talking about how to do the work right, um, how to get value, how to avoid pitfalls. And we were just talking about that day-to-day -day based on my prior experience as a data consultant and uh, some time in academia and some time in official statistics, David's background that he'll tell you more about. And we thought, okay, let's record this for posterity or something. For some reason, we started recording the conversations. And uh, I think we recorded them before we got the name. Uh, maybe, David, you fill in a bit more about your background. Uh, in short, I've been a data practitioner for, in one way or another for a long time. I guess my individual data journey started about 20 years ago and have used lots of tools. And so I'm I'm the data person through and through from way back. And David? 
Yeah, so uh, so I'm David Asboth. Um, my background is actually in software development. So I was a software developer for a few years. And as it sort of happens with small software teams, we we kind of did data work because there wasn't a dedicated data team. So, you know, we ran like ad hoc SQL queries to, to help people with sort of ad hoc questions that they had. We also built a sort of small management information sort of collection of basic reports and things. And we were the ones to look after that. And just a few years of a few months and years of doing that, I, I realized that's actually a really interesting area more so for me than just, and just as in inverted commas of, of software development. Um, so I just found the data world and the, the whole idea of taking this pile of data and, and trying to answer someone's real question much more interesting. So I transitioned into data science um, I, I went the academic route. I did a master's in data science, although whenever people ask me if they should do that, I always think, well, it depends on the kind of person you are. I needed the formal education surroundings to actually to push myself through it, but uh, it's not something I would necessarily recommend to people. And then so Sean and I met when Sean hired me into this data science team that we had at, at Cox. Um, and yeah, and the, the reason, Sean, that we started recording them is because whenever we went to a meetup, or gave a talk somewhere or talked to anyone, people would ask us the same questions about how data science is done in the real world. And we were lazy. So we thought we'll just put it on the internet and then we can just point people at this website rather than have to remember the answer every time. Yeah. I mean, so since Cox Automotive, I, because I, Sean and I have both left. Um, so I'm currently sort of teaching data science courses, workshops and boot camps, uh, mainly with General Assembly. Um, so that, that's been teaching has been a passion of mine for, for many years. And I finally managed to combine it with my sort of day, day job as well. So that, that's kind of where I'm, I'm at these days. So it's quite good that Sean and I have got different perspectives now of the data world. So we worked together on the same problems for a while, but now we've diverged into different aspects of the data space. So we, we've got a lot of uh, interesting things to talk about, which will one day translate into more episodes. <laughs> All <laughs> yeah. right. Well, that's great. And I'm sure our listeners will be interested to hear some if they're not already listening. Can you explain how you picked the name for your podcast? I think it goes back to those experiences that David just reminded me about. So we would go to a meetup group and explain how we were doing it. People were interested in how to get started with data science in their particular context. But also we were going to meetups not as speakers, but as guests, audience members. And I remember very well one at a large technology company running a social network. And afterwards, afterwards I tried, I tried to ask one of our questions to one of their data scientists. And I asked, I asked about the difficulties of getting hold of the right data for your question. And this polite gentleman, you know, listened to my question and then looked at me like I was from a different planet. And then he said, well, we have a team of data engineers dedicated to that. And if there's something that we need and we don't have, we just ping them a message on Slack. And then like a few minutes later, they send us a link to the S3 bucket where that data is. And I just realized, wow, that's uh, we have some of the same words in our job title and maybe we have some of the same training and maybe some of what we do at some level looks similar day to day, but really the context you're operating in is, is quite different. And when 
I interviewed David for that job. I think we got to talking about this issue. I recently published something actually in Computer Weekly I, uh, on this. I called it, um, don't just listen to the 1% view of, of data science. And, and David, you remembered uh, an article that you had read about, was it called Dark Matter Developers? What was the? Yeah, yeah that, that's, that resonated with us. It was about uh, software developers who aren't like working at kind of hipster startups. They were just working on old enterprise software and just making it tick along and essentially powering the entire world. But you won't find them at the cool meetups. They just go to work work with some really old version of PHP and then go home. Um, and you won't ever hear about them. They don't have a podcast. They don't blog about it, but they make up a large percentage of the, uh, of the workforce and the, therefore the industry. And we thought of the same of data science that we probably represent a larger percentage of, uh, of what data science looks like in the real world versus this gentleman that Sean was talking to, because how many companies have that infrastructure to just get the data they need in a nice, clean, tabular format? I mean, that's no one <laughs> apart from the top top 1%. Yeah, and so that distorts what the public's view is of, of data science and the value of AI and how it's done and can only reinforce the, you know, AI is robots misperception. It also raises the entry bar or the perceived entry bar, which is something I care a lot about not happening because I got into this not by accident, but I sort of realized at some point that I could turn the skills that I had into this thing that you would get paid more money to do, but it was also challenging. So putting all these things together and looking at our own challenges at the time, we realized, well, we want to remember what we say and be able to refer people who ask us different questions about, you know, how do you divide responsibility between a BI team and a data science team, or how do you get hold of data? How do you involve stakeholders? And we just started recording ourselves, our own answers to that. And, and then to finally answer your question, the half stack is a poke at ourselves and at the people who say that to be a legitimate data scientist, you have to be able to do everything from hand code Kafka streaming pipelines through to CI, CD across edge compute, you know, that whole hype cycle. And so we said, well, what's what's half of full? That's half. So let's say, let's say we're half stack data scientists. And the title provokes that question and gets us to explain it as we have have now. So we think it's important to present and amplify the views of the great overwhelming majority of people who are out there doing this job. Well, that's great. Well, I'll have you know that I work on the latest version of PHP. So <laughs> Still PHP, but okay, top 1% stuff, Ron. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm classic. Um, so th this is really great. I mean, that's actually really, I love those insights because those are the sorts of things that I think, well, first of all, we don't we don't hear a lot of, sometimes people are, are um, shy to share the, the realities of, of making data science or any aspect of the data lifecycle work. And they might think, oh, it's not, you know, if you, if you looked behind the scenes and you look within my organization at all, it's like, it's just, it doesn't look very good. It's like held together with string and wire and glue. And, and, and we, we don't have any logical process by which we do things, but, but like, we must be different. You know, maybe it's just mm -hmm. our organization. It turns out like, well, maybe, what you think is happening in the real world really is a lot like what you are and less like 
these you know fang companies and i have to say I, kathleen and i have, have been having this discussion even offline off of ai today and in our cognolytica and our research advisory practice and that even the software development processes have all been kind of well, i don't want to use the word bastardized but they've been sort of changed because of the popular idea of move fast and break things often which which may be true the problem is that where did the user requirements fall out of the loop of, it didn't say, listen to the customer, then make those things, then break them off. No, it's just deploy and break things off. People get for the sake of it, because I guess if we've, you know, if we've got venture capital money and it's on fire, you know, we're burning it, then um, the interesting thing about that is if you, if you go back and read the first version of the Agile Manifesto, it's, it's hard to compare that sometimes to what some of that has kind of turned into, um, you know, when I read that, I, I see getting close to your customer and delivering something valuable to them, anything valuable to them as quickly as possible to get feedback, to do it again and over and over and over, which is much closer to what a good data workflow looks like than what, what, what some of the agile ritualized agile has, uh, has become. Yeah. Well, that actually sort of leads into the next question here because you guys have been seeing this. So you mentioned you've been you've been recording things in your own conversations to share with folks about the realities and the challenges. So so my next question has to do with well, what are you seeing? Maybe you could share with us either from the podcast or from your own experiences, you know, the realities of data science and enterprise. And you know, how are enterprises and organizations dealing with data across the life cycle or how they notably failing and maybe provide some examples. You don't have to name names, but provide some examples. I think think that'll be really helpful to our to our listeners. We had a particularly difficult challenge, I think, Sean, didn't we? Because the company we worked for was actually a collection of other companies. So it wasn't even just within the same organization, can we get the data that we need? It was, oh, we this company has bought other companies. And so now we're all part of the same family. But if you want the data from people going to every sub section every sub organization has is going to have its own challenges and they're going to have their own different data formats their own different level of of scrutiny security whatever else infrastructure um but, but i think that that was like an extreme version of what it looks like in the real world it's like maybe the data you need to answer the question you have is actually sitting on a excel sheet on someone's desktop um but you don't know that until you've gone around and spoken to everyone and spent six months trying to, oh, well, let's put just stuff in a database and then we can answer questions, but it, it's never that simple. I, th- I think the problem is, right, that people think, or at least thought when the data hype cycle was was much bigger that, oh, we just need this fancy technology and the few people with PhDs and the, the value will just kind of come automatically. Um, Sean, I mean, you, you're much more immersed in this now. I, just for me, just based on what I see on social media, I see more and more pieces refuting this. It feels like the industry is cottoning on that it's not that simple. But I mean, what what do you think, Sean? Yeah, the sort of second derivative has has changed in that. I think the hype cycle still has a way to inflate, but the rate at which it's doing so is decreasing because there's more and more thinking and writing emerging about how traditional ways of solving some of these problems are just the fact they made they maybe didn't work for 30 or 40 years already might be a sign that they're actually not solvable. So one thing that's become very fashionable recently is data mesh. 
as an architecture, which when you read it, it's just like, well, it's a really great collection of a lot of great ideas stitched together in an elegant way. Um, and yeah, everyone's tried many times to first put all of their data in one place and then do stuff with it. Uh, and what David was alluding to was that sometimes to discover and then realize value, you have to leave the data where it is. You have to accept the cheeky extract, the partial access, the lower resolution than you wanted to. Because until you prove some value from that, you don't actually have a business case to rock up to IT and say, hey, we're the data science team and we're amazing, so give us all your data. And that's what some of us, I think, thought when we got that job title data scientist and we were hired into these elite squads that we'd just kind of sidle up to DBAs and slip them 20 and then they'd, you know, let us download the whole database at, at, at 2 a.m. By the way, that's $50 from my experience. So, sorry, yeah. The price is always going that's the inflation up. inflation right there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. On the, and on the technology side, you see a massive proliferation of, you know, what, what generation are up to now? Ninth generation virtualization layers, right, to, to move this further and further and, and, and further. The common thing is to get data from parts of the organization, you have to make it um, compatible with the incentives of the people who hold that data. You've got to have a reason for them to give it to you. And one of the old fashioned techniques of you know going up the chain to create a large weight to drop on those people's head. It does, you know, it might get you a one-off extract, but it doesn't, it doesn't build that relationship. So I think <clears throat> practitioners in the field have a long way to go to tell stories about the value of sharing that data with me because you are going to get something back. And often we just don't actually have an answer. Um, yeah, those are really great insights. And I think it's important to share that too, because you're right. I think sometimes people maybe have perceptions of things and d depending on what organization you're at, things may be different. But, you know, in general, um, it's always great to share different experiences that you're seeing, especially being both of you being data science practitioners. I think that's incredibly helpful. So, you know, since you are both practitioners, you get to have those really unique insights and you've worked for, you know, a few different companies now to really see how, how things are and how they're evolving and how, you know, trends can be different. Um, maybe larger trends can be different, but then also the same as well. So in that regard, what are you seeing as some of the biggest trends emerging in both data and data science today? I think related to what David was saying about at least the hype cycle slowing down, there's a, a growing recognition that it's not for the 1% of the top companies doing it. That was the reason we started our podcast to get that view out there, but also that within an organization, it's not for a 1% or a 0.1% of, of that workforce to get the most out of data either. And actually, the data and the tools to work with it efficiently have to be in more people's hands. And I will put my hand up and say that I have been in the past quite an elitist about that, quite at the end of the spectrum of. Well, if we gave data to people, they'd just do silly things with it. They'd, they'd draw the wrong conclusions, wouldn't they? And I, you know, that's partly the, my background and, and some of my training is 
let's not let it out in the wild. But I don't see any way technologically, organizationally to, to solve these challenges without a lot more people caring beyond the, the small fraction of people with the, the highest level of, of training. So, you know, again, it's tough that word, you know, that phrase democratizing data, it has been around for quite a while. Uh, a lot of people haven't made much progress, but I think it's, it's really the only way forward is to get, get more people involved because we can't train experts fast enough. They all get hired by five companies anyway. And do we want them working on all of our problems? Maybe they should work on some of the toughest problems. The answers tend to get open sourced at some level. Then all the rest of us can use it. Um, but yeah, that's passionate. That's something I'm passionate about. And I know, David, you know, you're an educator now. So clearly <laughs> you care about that too. Yeah, isn't it funny? This is a conversation we, we were having a few weeks ago about the phrase citizen data scientist, right? It was like, oh, should we empower everyone in an organization with data science skills? And, and as Sean says, and I, I would have been the same a few years ago to say, oh, well, that's too much power and too much responsibility for, for most people. I keep it in, in the, the data science team. But yeah, as, as we've seen in our job and as Sean has seen now in lots of places, it, it doesn't work unless the it's an organizational culture. Like if you just have a data science team that is in any way separate from how the rest of the business operates, you can't you can't deliver value. Um, and you know one one idea is to take your data scientists and in our case we were in the used car market, so you could make them sell used cars for a while so they can see what it's like, and then their data science work is informed by actual. Uh, actual business problems, but that's not going to fly with with most people. <laughs> I don't think most people are coming out of PhD programs expecting to then sell used cars for a bit just so they can understand the industry. Um, so the other idea is to take people who understand the industry and upskill them enough so that they're you know they do just enough data analysis and just enough um, cleaning and and all that kind of stuff that uh, so they can actually get some of their own answers. Because uh, there's not really a way to avoid that problem that Sean mentioned. Like, if we come to some conclusions and present them, people are going to run with their own version of it anyway. So it doesn't really matter if they derived it or we did. It's just if they derive it, then they leave us alone, and they but and they also have their own, you know, their own uh, their own problem to solve. So they're a lot closer to the to, to the value generation part. So that's the trend I see in education as well. Of like corporate training is now much better because so many companies are realizing that they need to take people who aren't data people and they don't want to turn them into data scientists. They just want to upskill them in these skills. Um, and those skills are not AI machine learning. They are, how do I take seven Excel files, mash them all into one and make a bar chart from it? Like It doesn't matter how, how you teach it, what examples you use, the feedback is almost always from people, oh yeah, the machine learning stuff is really cool. I don't see myself using that in the next two years. What I really, um, I'm glad I learned on this bootcamp is how to manipulate data at scale so that I don't have to click buttons in Excel, nor do I have to copy and paste things from seven sources um, and then repeat the same manual task every single day as part of my job. So and I now I save two happens. days a week, which is like, yeah, uh, uh, it's an amazing impact to be able so, to so enable maybe, people. And, and maybe our impact is saving people two days a week so that they can actually start thinking about how to do their jobs better and not let's make the data scientist you know, parachute them in and, and make them deliver some kind of nebulous value. 
Yeah, you know, that's interesting that you bring that up. And I think that, you know, we always say that organizations just have a tremendous amount of data. Data is incredibly valuable. And so to be able to manipulate it, work with it, understand it is incredibly important for everybody at the organization, not just a select few. So um, it's great to see that, that that's moving forward. You had talked about kind of the hype cycle slowing down. Is this, are you talking about like a data science hype cycle, an AI hype cycle, a little bit of both? Um, what, well, I, what I was thinking specifically was that when I studied data science at university, it was very academic. It was all maths, basically, which I wasn't really prepared for. And then you go into industry and none of it is maths because all of it is taking seven different data formats, mashing them together, fixing the dates and so on. You know, that's most of your work, which they don't teach you at an academic institution. And I think the gap between what people think data science training is and what data science is uh, and then what it actually looks like, I think that gap is 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 maybe getting smaller um, over the years. That's, I mean, that was what I was thinking. Yeah. Sean, what 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 else are you? I think cycle? that there have been several waves of hype. Probably the first wave was big data starting in early 2010s, and then it pretty quickly became, unless you're doing big data, what it which means spending a lot of money on Hadoop. Um, you're not cool and you'll definitely fail. And then a couple of years later, well, you should really be doing a modern Hadoop, which is a Spark. And if you're not doing that, then how can you be a data science company? And you need to be that, otherwise you're going to fail. And then a couple of years later, well, unless you're doing all of the above on Kubernetes, how are you going to be an AI company? And I understand why those things resonate because people have money to spend in budgets and they have big things they want to achieve. And what the hype cycle does is connect aspirations with wallets, right? And say, you know, give me all your money and magic, magic will happen. I think because there have now been so many of those cycles and so many people have been burnt that some people are now being more careful about the business case they're building and focusing more on do we have the right people plan, the right org structure, the right level of priority, sponsorship? Are we doing something about data literacy? All of the classics and all of the foundational stuff that you need, whatever technology you're using. Yeah, that's great. We actually like we like hearing that. I mean, we do and we don't. I mean, <laughs> the hype cycle benefits in some ways and, and, and it hurts in other ways, right? Obviously, if you're a high growth startup company and uh, enterprises are all feeling the hype cycle. It's good because it helps grow that. But at some point, you know, hype has to meet reality because it's just not sustainable. And then, and then, you know, you have the, the, that trough of dissolution mentality <laughs> people talk about. So I think, I think that's, uh, you know, we need to, we, we're, we're, what we're concerned about is like, well, at the end of the day, you know, um, you could really make the argument that uh, of all the assets in the enterprise, uh, the ones that have the most value are are the data. Well, first of all, the people, and then and the data, and then the, the things that connect the people and the data and the customers together. That's kind of where the, the value is. The kind of the systems come and go, and technology comes. Especially if you're one of those organizations that's grown through you know aggregation of a bunch of other companies mm -hmm. through acquisition then it doesn't matter how smart the CIO is. You merge and all of a sudden it's like, well, wait a second, my smart CEO, CIO made a completely different set of technology decisions. 
And now you're kind of in this weird mess. But the one thing that unites all them is like, well, yeah, the systems might be different, but the data still represents your customers, your employees, your partners, all that sort of stuff. This is really very interesting insight. Really good. I think this is a healthy dose of reality. I think our listeners might really appreciate that. You know, so so speaking a little bit about that, you know, thinking about some of the folks that you talk to that maybe are on the 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 implementer side. Um, have you, have you heard or seen any sort of maybe surprising things that maybe you're like, oh, I didn't expect that or, or some interesting insights, some common themes, uh, that, that, that might be of interest, uh, to share to our listeners here. Well, season one was just David and I speaking to each other and, and recording it, getting our thoughts down. And then we thought, what should season two be? And we thought, let's talk to the people that we know. And sticking with this theme of um, trying to surface stories and people and 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 themes and ways of thinking that are not what you read on the internet, we specifically sought out people from our networks who had interesting backgrounds. And by interesting, I mean not so-called typical paths into into data science. And so we interviewed uh, now data consultant who I used to work for when I was a consultant, but his first training was like to a very high level in classical guitar. And then someone that I went to grad school who is a data science teacher, professor by day, uh, also a circus performer, fire breathing, and also a stand-up comedian. And then some other people uh, as well. And the, what we bet on and what I think we proved with those four or five guests is lots of different kinds of people can get into this field. And so that's a, that's a theme that we wanted to, to push on. And we did, it wasn't surprising that we found back in people's history, you know, all these, all this interesting stuff. Um, but yeah, the, anyone from any background with that right motivation can bring bring what they know and what they've learned to bear to answer these questions with data. And maybe that's surprising to some people. It's certainly surprising to people who still contact us now and again, right, David, and say, which course should I do? What language should I learn? Which specific narrow thing should I do from the very beginning so that I can be like you? And the point is, don't try and be like someone, get some experience and apply it to something. And having that industry knowledge first is almost really beneficial because if you're a data scientist going into an industry you've never worked in before, it's a there's a lot to catch up on about how the industry works. If you're someone who's embedded in that industry for decades and you're upskilling in data skills, I think that ramp is actually easier to climb and quicker and and more valuable for the company as well because that person cares about the industry. So if you've been in automotive for 10 years, you care about the industry, you want to stay there. So upskilling you in data skills means that you are now a, a budding data scientist in the automotive industry who also wants to continue being good at doing data science in the automotive industry. Whereas if you're a data scientist who thinks you're somehow separate from the industry, then you know your next job might just be in a completely different industry and you've kind of thrown away some of your experience in some, in, in some, uh, some ways. Yeah, those are great insights. So listeners, <laughs> take note if you want to get into data science. And also we encourage them to check out your podcast that has a wealth of knowledge. Um, you know, 
this is why we enjoy uh, all of our interviews and definitely with other podcasters. So we like to always wrap up our podcast by asking our guests the same last question because we get such varied responses and I always love to hear what everybody has to say. So as a final note, what do you believe the future of AI is in general and its application to organizations and beyond? I was going to say we asked the same first question, but for the same reason, because uh, we always get a uh, different responses. Uh, you have to listen to the crossover episode uh, to hear that. The future of AI in general. Well, I think there's a way to run on the kind of killer rogue robots thing that's not going away anytime soon. Um, so I think the public consumers are going to continue to have a mistaken view of it for a very long time, even while it seeps into more and more of all of our lives, overwhelmingly for benefit, but unfortunately quite often for, for not benefit at the individual level or at the societal level. So it's gonna end up everywhere. And for all the reasons we've discussed, it's complicated to do, and that makes it difficult to understand and, and, and govern. So I think in, in different industries, in different countries at different times, there's gonna be reckonings you know at, at the moment it's sort of these blips of this algorithm did something that no one expected that it could have biased one group of people over another because every other decision in history has biased has had that same bias and then somehow we thought that a machine would not just reproduce that that bias and so at the moment these things emanate you know as scandals as crises and you already see um politics mobilizing response in, in the regulation that's coming in every country in slightly different flavors, but actually much more uniform on AI than it is on data privacy, for example. So there's a regulatory response coming and regulators are going to have a tougher time understanding this and constraining it in the right way than, than anything else. Um, so it's a little bit bleak to say all of that. <laughs> I just really hope that um, people are out there telling the the value story and something I, I something I do care about is that the the scandals and the mistakes and the missteps don't prevent you know really positive value creation, particularly in in nonprofits and governments who who don't have that. Well, we made a lot of revenue to stand on, so it would be really disappointing if you know, the many and maybe necessary missteps along the way lead to kind of uh, two roads, you know, uh, one where a set of organizations create a lot of value for themselves and as a spin-off create value for others, but other kinds of organizations, governments, agencies, civil society, you know, are too afraid to use it because they don't have, um, they don't feel they have the backing. That, that would be sad because we all know the value that it can deliver when it's when it's done right. I think um, the only thing I would add to that is what, what I'm seeing sort of at the grassroots level, as, as I was saying a few times, that more and more I think people will upskill in the skills that they actually need. And then a lot of that other stuff, like the machine learning predictive AI stuff, will be sort of abstracted away from them to the appropriate level like in in any kind of tooling for example where the prediction is a 
is a drag and drop element, I think that's absolutely fine for most of the people's use cases. So sort of basic data and predictive numeracy, literacy kind of thing is, is probably important for everyone, maybe even in the school curriculum one day in the future, um, but not people don't need to know the maths behind it or anything like that. So hopefully it, it will be additional buttons you can click in your daily workflow to, to make your life easier with technology. That, that's what I'm hoping at the sort of grassroots level where, where I talk to people. Um, I am, I'm hoping for that trend to, to increase. That's something I'm really passionate about because it, it frustrates me when people are doing stuff that computers should be doing. Like, oh, I have to go to these websites and copy these numbers into a spreadsheet. And then I need to email this to my boss, but I need to remember to CC someone else and depending on if it's Monday or Wednesday. And you sit there like, I could write a Python script in like seven minutes that could do this, a bit of an exaggeration. But if you teach them the skills and the mindset to just get that off their plate and let the computer do it, I think then then that that should be a quiet revolution in the future, hopefully. Yeah, this is really, really great answer. We, we love the realism. I mean, that's part of it. And as I mentioned, we ask this question to everybody. We get such a diverse set of responses, and I think it's fantastic. And I'm with you on those frustrations. <laughs> I mean, some some of the answers have a lot to do with automation. Some of it have to do with basic data literacy. Some has to do with data engineering and data preparation. And I think I think you know, for us, that's you know, that's the one consistent thing we're seeing is that even though the applications are different, the set of things we need to think about, whether you're a Coca-Cola or a Wells Fargo or like a three-person construction firm or a in, you know, engineering consultancy, there is a logical set of steps. I mean, that's part of why we push so much on methodology, you know, which people might think like, oh, it's so boring, it's wonky. It's like, the, the thing that you should learn if you if you go to school and you learn these things either at an early age or later is not necessarily the tooling because the tooling will continuously change and update. What you should learn is the approach. Just like there's a scientific method, right? We learn scientific, kids learn scientific method in elementary school, right? Middle school, and they apply the scientific method in high school when they're doing you know experiments. This is not something you learn in college. You learn it, every student learns that maybe the things that we should be teaching at an early age is sort of like the data methodology or the information methodology, whatever that is. For us, we have, you know, CPMAI is really a methodology for practitioners, for people who are trying to do any sort of data project based, again, as mentioned, on CRISPDM, which is a methodology that's been around for 20 plus years. It's not the end all and be all is there are there better methodologies maybe but certainly having one is better than not having one and when you hire people into your organization you're hiring these data scientists people we're hearing here on this on this podcast you don't want someone bringing in a completely different method and approach and say well no i i take all the data and i extract it first and then like well wait a second don't you do this don't you do the go no go don't you do the seven patterns don't you do this so like so so one of the things that we done and for our listeners who have probably heard this now a hundred times. Um, we do uh, advocate methodology, uh, CPMAI, the Cognitive Project Management for AI Methodology, which is the enhancement of the CRISPDM methodology, which just adds to CRISPDM the more specific things that you would need for any sort of cognitive project around model evaluation and data preparation and for, for, for projects and what, something we borrow from Intel called the AI Go No-Go and all these sorts of things. Um, you know, you can certainly build a methodology yourself, but the purpose of sort of an established methodology is so that when you do move 
from job to job, or when you hire contractors, or you buy products, if you know that at least they have something that's compatible with what you're doing, then you can say, oh, okay, your process maps to this part of the process, or we're using the same process. So I can ask you, okay, great, data preparation, you were supposed to prepare for me, sort of like the minimum data set and that sort of stuff. For our listeners who are curious about that, please go to courses, C-O-U-R-S-E-S dot cognolytica.com, C-O-G-N-I-L-Y-T-I-C-A.com to learn more about uh, this approach and this methodology. And uh, certainly a lot of organizations have been through it. We put we put the government through this paces on this one quite a bit. Uh, will that make the government more efficient? That's a whole other ball of wax. I'm not going to get into that, but <laughs> at least it's a, it's a stepping stone for you. So um, I want to thank our podcast guests. We're like 40 minutes. Fantastic interview. You guys are fantastic. And as mentioned, uh, we were so thrilled to be guests on their podcast as well. So we encourage you to go subscribe and listen to the Half Stack Data Science Podcast. Uh, clearly, they have a fantastic perspective, a real world. We love real world perspectives. You know, it's not all, uh, you know, fireworks and roses. <laughs> and uh, we encourage our listeners to listen, especially if you're kind of like you like what you hear. You hear and I know we do. Um, encourage you to go over there, listen to subscribe, of course, listen to our interview as well, but then use that again as a stepping stone to expand your education and knowledge um, because that's really helpful. So I, I, I don't know, Kathleen, first of all, I just want to thank our guests so much for, for being a part of Thanks this. for having us. Thanks, yeah, for, having thanks us. for having us. Yeah, that's David, great. Sean, thank you so much for joining us today. And as Ron mentioned, we will be on their show as well, the Half Stack Data Science Podcast. So we'll make sure to link to that episode in the show notes. We encourage all of our listeners to check that out. And if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make sure to rate us on iTunes, Google, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next episode. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter, and more, please visit our website at cognolytica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group. And make sure to join the Cognolytica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play, and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes. Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. This sound recording and its contents is copyright by Cognolytica. All rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast. Bye.